be. Lord, I pray that you open our eyes, our ears, our hearts right now. We pray to you, we sing to you, and now we ask you to speak to us, Lord. We are eager to hear your word. Help me to be faithful. Help me to be clear. Help the congregation to be faithful, attentive as they listen. Lord, I pray that your word would resound through Salem this morning, Lord. Let your people hear your word and let your preachers preach faithfully your truth. We praise you and we thank you for this place. Thank you for each life here. Lord, we pray your blessing upon those who are not here, those who are sick, those who are traveling. Be with them, Lord. And be with us, we ask you. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. What a joy to be with you this morning. And those who are visiting us, be welcome. You can open your Bibles in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. You have the Gospels, Acts, Romans, and then comes 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We have been walking through the doctrine of the church. We have been looking at the, the character, the nature of the church. The first two sermons, we saw how the church is not a mistake, it's not an accident, has always been God's plan. We also saw that there is continuity with the Old Testament, with the Old Covenant, and there are discontinuities. So, today we come to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and, and here we also see another aspect of the church, the nature of the church. So, I want to invite you to stand up if you can. And let's start in verse 12. Chapter 12, verse 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one Spirit we are all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one Spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, Because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, Oh, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But, as it is, God arranged the members in the body, 
each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many members, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God so composed the body, giving greater honor to the parts that lack it, that there, are, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers... All suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. You may be seated. Two Sundays ago, not last Sunday, last Sunday you have the wonderful visit of Odi and just a wonderful preaching. But the Sunday before that, you remember the I changed Jesus' question. Remember Mark chapter 4, verse 30. There were, there were a lot of people confused about the nature of the kingdom of God in Jesus' day. A lot of people misunderstanding the kingdom of God. So Jesus raised this question. With what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? And we saw that in light of the confusion and misunderstanding today in relation to the church, it would be appropriate to change and say, what? What shall we compare the church? What is the church? And we saw that if we ask the gurus and the experts, that the church is compared to a theater with professional entertainment, or maybe a talent show, a lounge where you go just to relax or a spa. But here are some other metaphors that are used today for the church. One is the church is like a restaurant. The church is like a restaurant where you go just to be fed. Uh, let me ask you, do you ever think about going to a restaurant to serve people? The whole purpose is going to the restaurant to what? To be served. To be served. So a lot of people think of the church as a restaurant. Many times as a fast food restaurant where you just go really quickly. Uh, and if the service is longer than 45 minutes, you have the right to complain. Because that took way too long of your time on that Sunday morning. Or if the preaching is longer than 30 minutes, you, you feel like you, you have to complain also because you want fast food. Or it's just like a buffet where you go and you pick whatever you want. That's how many people see the church. So you have the early morning service where it provides older hymns for the older people. It's like a buffet. You choose. You prefer older hymns. You prefer uh, calmer. So you come to the early service on Sunday morning. Oh, you like something more upbeat, more uplifting. So you come to the second service and you have more contemporaneous songs. And, and that will make you feel good. Or if you want the Sunday off to relax, you come to the Saturday evening service. So it's like a buffet. You just choose whatever you want. And if you don't get the food that you were expecting, you have the right to complain. Or if the food was a little bit hard on your tummy, hard to digest, too much exhortation, too much rebuke, then you can complain and never come back there. 
Because the church is just like a restaurant. So, it's a place where you go to be served. Not only a restaurant, but the church is like a social justice community. So, for many people, the church is just whatever you mean by social justice. You just keep hearing that over and over again. Social justice, social justice. And honestly, you get to a point, you don't even know what that means. Especially when Christians are talking about that as if it was a biblical thing. So, the church becomes this place for social and political issues. Many people see the church's primary goal is to feed the homeless, fight abortion, works of mercy. Some of those things are really good. But that's not, that's not what the church should be all about. Though many of these things are very important, the church's primary goal is not to be involved in the salvation of people from social and economical distress, but salvation from the wrath to come. Another one. The church is like a country club. You go because of the activities it offers. So the church becomes the family activity center. So they care for the kids. And I get all these magazines. With, as a pastor, I, I, I received this material. And I got one a few months ago. I was going to bring here. Oh, I chose to spare you that. But it was interesting because it was about, about what church should be providing. And they had all this idea for children's ministry and, and the types of crackers and fish gold that, uh, that you should serve to the kids and what you offer to visitors. And, and that's how many people see the church. Daycare for the kids, entertainment for teenagers and youth, activity for single people. Why do you go to this church? Oh, because they have a wonderful youth ministry. Why do you go to that church? Oh, because the children's ministry is fantastic. Brothers and sisters, that's a disaster. When you're choosing a church based on the preference of your children, that's scary. You're feeding your soul with hellish food because your kids are having a good time. That's scary. And so many people, so many people, they see the church as a country club. So they go because of the activities they offer to the family. People moving, leaving healthy churches so they can go to a church where there are more youth group activities, more children activities, and the soul perishes. Or lastly here, the church, what is the church? The church is the Sunday gathering in a building. So for many people, the church is only this one or two hours that we have on Sundays in this place. So for many people, the church, honestly, it's just a big devotional time on Sunday morning. It's a communal devotional time where you come here to have your devotions. They see the church as the building here, that Sunday. And I know that the Sunday gathering is extremely important in the life of the church. But if you think that only this here is the church, you are confused. You are confused. You are ignorant about the nature of the church. Even though this is very important, this is not the church. Just the Sunday morning gathering. Or this building here. They leave the church as easily as they leave Walmart because they don't see the church as the family of God, the body of Christ in which you must join with other members. The smallest issues that did not please their self-centeredness is occasion to leave the church, which is the Sunday gathering. They have no life in the church. So for many people, life in the community of the local church is something incidental instead of indispensable. They disregard one of the main purposes of Jesus' death. Why did Jesus die? Read the New Testament. And one of the main purposes for Jesus' death is to make one body. To make one His people. 
he's talking about the universal church. How is the universal church visible, demonstrated through local churches? And that's what Paul shows us here in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. He brings a new metaphor for the church. When you think about the New Testament, there are many metaphors for the church. Why? Because the subject is so deep, so wide, that you cannot have just one metaphor. You cannot have just one name. It's like dealing with sin. There are many words and terms for sin. Why? Because it's such a vast subject. Or salvation, as we were studying on Wednesday nights. All the different terms and words for salvation. Why? Why not just salvation? Why redemption? Why reconciliation? Because it's such a vast subject that you need all these metaphors, metaphors all these words to, to show the beauty and the profundity of the subject. So we saw in our last study, 1 Timothy chapter 3.15, Paul used the metaphors of a household, an assembly, and a temple. And now, Paul will show us the church as what? The body. The body of Christ. The outline is very simple. We're going to see first the context of 1 Corinthians 12, all the divisions, this unity because of diversity, and then we're going to see how Paul deals with that. Despite the diversity, the focus is on the unity of the community. That's Paul's main idea. So you have 1 Corinthians in your Bible. Uh, the name Corinthians is because those were churches in Corinth, a city in Greece. You want to know how Paul began those churches? You go to Acts chapter 18. You can go home later today and read Acts chapter 18. And there you learn how Paul started planting these churches in Corinth. You remember that he was with Priscilla and Acla. And he found those churches and he spent 18 months there. 18 months in Corinth. Helping establishing those churches. And that's... The reason why we have these letters here, and just so you know, we have 1 Corinthians, but it's actually at least the second letter. When you read 1 Corinthians, you, you see that Paul was already answering other letters. So that's not the first one, it's the first in our canon here, but actually there were other, other letters, and that would be basically the second letter, because Paul is answering some questions that they raised with the first letter, and... As you go through 1 Corinthians, you see that there were a lot of issues, major issues in these churches here. And let me give you the four major issues that Paul is dealing here. The first one is with favoritism, favoritism towards church leaders. Remember, oh, I'm of Apollos. Oh, I'm of Cephas. Oh, I'm of Jesus, the Holy Ones. Oh, you belong to Paul. Oh, I belong to Jesus. Remember, there were all the division in the church because of favoritism. The second one was lawsuits among the members of the church. They're having issues because they're taking other brothers and sisters from the same church to the court. There are issues with the Lord's Supper and major issues with spiritual gifts. So as we are taking a big, broad picture upon this ladder, let's start coming closer to where we, where we are. So we start in chapter 11, chapter 11 through chapter 14. Paul is dealing primarily with aspects of the corporate church service. When they were gathering together, just like us this morning, to worship the Lord. Okay, so, so that's where we are. Some issues, starting chapter 11, primarily related to the worship service on the Lord's Day. 
Paul addresses head coverings, the Lord's Supper, and the spiritual gifts. In chapter 12, that's where we are. Through chapter 14, Paul is dealing with misunderstandings about spiritual gifts. In particular, the gift of tongues, speaking tongues. That was the major issue in that church. And was creating a lot of divisions in that church. And Paul's main weapon to destroy all the division that's happening in the church is to do what? Let's hold hands and sing Kumbaya, my Lord. No. Heavy doctrine about the nature of the church. So Paul deals with issues of division in the church by giving them the doctrine of the church. You need to understand the nature of the church and by understanding the nature of the church that will help destroying all these divisions that we are having in that church. So look at chapter 12 in your Bibles. Let's start moving here through the verses. And you see verses 1 through 3. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be ignorant. And sometimes the most loving thing is to have a more mature, more spiritual person come to you and say, Brother, you are being ignorant about certain things. I know that sounds offensive today, but that's very loving when someone says to you, in love, someone who is more mature saying, you are being ignorant about this subject. Let me inform you. Let me help you. That's what Paul is doing here. And they are not having a problem with lack of experience. They have a lack of knowledge. Okay, So you go to many churches and people are experiencing all these things. And Paul say, I honestly don't care about all the experience. I care about the knowledge. Where is the knowledge of the Lord, the church? So verses 4 through 11, Paul starts describing, he starts here to develop the theme of diversity and unity. Notice verses 4 through 11. That's before we come to our verses, okay? That's important because Paul is developing his reasoning. That's why you cannot be lazy with reading the Scriptures. Paul is developing his reasoning here and these things will be developed through the passage we are dealing with. He says, verses 4 through 11, now there are what? Varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. Varieties of service, but the same Lord. Varieties of activities, but the same God. What is that? Diversity and unity. Diversity under unity. Unity over diversity. Because God is above. A variety of things, the same one Spirit. Varieties of this, but one Lord. So Paul is starting to develop this diversity and unity inside the church. And he says, all this, the variety, are empowered by one and the same Spirit. And look at verse 7. Look at verse 7. He explains the reason for the manifold gifts. Here's why we have all these gifts in the church. For the common good. For the good of the whole body. Not just for your personal, your private good, but for the good of the whole body. And we will develop more the subject here later. But let's go to the verses we need to deal with. Verse 12. So he's developing the theme of diversity and unity. Varieties the same, varieties the same. And now look at verse 12. For just as the body, one body, the body is one and has what? Many members. And all the members of the body, though many, are one body. So it is with Christ. 
So now, you see, it's all this division in the church because people with different gifts are thinking that they're better than others and those who don't have that gift are thinking less of themselves and there's all this division. Oh, because you don't prophesy. Oh, because you don't speak in tongues. You're going to sit outside there in the back and you're not worthy to be with us because you're not as spiritual as we are. So you have all this division in the church and Paul is already establishing. God has given a variety of things but it's the same God. It's the same Lord. And now he uses the metaphor of a body. He gets the body. And he says, just like the body. You have all these members, all these parts. But how many bodies? One. It's one body with many members. That's Paul. That's what he's going to start developing here. Diversity. Fingers, forearms, legs, toes, head, nose, ears. Diversity. Variety, but one body. When I look at Rick, I see him, one person, one body. What the Paul says, For just as the body is one and has many members, all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it's with Christ. And you think about, wow, Paul, first you, you compare the church to an assembly, to a family, and now to the body. Why are you comparing the church to a body? First of all, I would say because he wants to show us that it's visible. This body is visible. That's one of Paul's logic. Jesus, who is the head, is in heaven. And we are his body here on earth. So we are the visible manifestation of Christ on earth. So there is this aspect of the head is in heaven, but the body is here. And that's who we are the visible, the tangible manifestation of the risen Christ. Not only the body is visible, but the body is alive. The body is a living organism or entity. Notice that Paul doesn't say the corpse of Christ or the carcass of Christ, but the body of Christ. Why? Children, what is a corpse? What is a carcass? Where are the children here? What is the, the, a corpse? Anybody? A dead body. When you see a, a, a beaver on the side of the road and you see a deer dead, it's a corpse, a carcass. There's no life there. But Paul doesn't say the church is the carcass of Christ. Actually, the church is the body of Christ. It's alive. The church is not a religious dead organization, but a living organism. Look at what Paul says in Ephesians 4, 15-16. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with its equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The body must be growing alive. Spurgeon said, Men sometimes lose a foot, or a leg, or an arm, an eye, or an ear. It's very remarkable how a man may continue to exist after he has lost several of his limbs. But he cannot live if his head is taken away. Cut that off, and the decapitated body is dead in an instant. So, brothers and sisters, the church of God lives because Christ lives. And its life is entirely derived from Him. If there were no Christ, there would be no church. And if there is anywhere a body of professors without vital union to Christ, 
they are not a church. They may have the name of church, but they are surely dead. So even for us today, as we think about this body, we are alive because Christ is our head. And we are growing as a body. As Paul says in Ephesians, growing. We are growing. Growing love for one another. Growing understanding of doctrines of the Scriptures. So, the body is visible. The body is alive. And lastly, I think that's the primary purpose of the metaphor of a body. The body speaks of unity over diversity. And that's, I think, Paul's main argument. When you look at a body... You see, you look at someone, as I said, look at Rick, I see Rick. But that body, Rick's body is formed of many members, many parts. Paul used the metaphor of the body to show the unity of the church community over her diversity. Listen to this. To this. Paul used the metaphor of the body to show the unity of the church community over her diversity. And you see this in verse 12. Or just as the body is one, has many members, and all the members, plural, of the body, singular, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. One without the other is a distortion. You cannot have a body without members. And if you have a body without certain members, it's a deformed body. So, pay attention. That's, that's what Paul is bringing here. All the members are important, and all this diversity brings a unity. Despite all the different gifts given to the different members, they make one body. Look what Paul says. That's amazing. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with what? What? Christ? Is he not talking about the church? You would expect Paul to say, so it is with the church. He's talking about the church. Diversity in the church. The members of the church. Why does he say, so it is with Christ? That's very important. Is Paul confused? Did Paul make a mistake here? Actually, Paul, you're supposed to write the church. And you wrote Christ. Actually, that's a metonymy. Metonymy is when you use a word, a word resembles something else. So, it's, there's such a, a, a deep connection. And Let me try to give you an example. When you say Kleenex, I need to buy some Kleenex. Kleenex is what? The brand. You're buying tissue paper. I need to buy Gillette. It's the razor blade to shave. So, so there are these things where the name of one thing is so deeply connected. Like in Brazil, we never say, uh, I'm going to make copies. I'm going to make Xerox. That's all we say. I need to make some Xerox. If you tell people, hey, did you know that Xerox is actually the brand? They're like, ah, you're crazy. No, it's the copies. Why? Because it's so connected. And that's what Paul is doing. It's because the church is so intrinsically connected to Jesus that he can use Christ to refer to the church. And as I was reading all these commentaries, a lot of his scholars debating, where, where did Paul get this metaphor of the body? Was he referring to, to Rome and the cities? Well, how? You see these scholars, we just don't know where Paul, was trying, where Paul drew this imagery from. Brothers and sisters, it's very simple. He drew from his own experience with Christ. Look at Acts. Here's an important study case. In Acts chapter 8, verse 3, we read, But Saul was ravaging, destroying, the NIV says, What? The church, the ecclesia. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. 
But now look at chapter 9. But Saul is still breathing threats and murder against who? The church. The disciples. The disciples of the Lord. Went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to what? The church. The way. Another name for the church. Men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So it's clear that Paul is persecuting the what? Church. Now, when we come to Acts chapter 9, and we have the account of Paul's encounter with Jesus. That's how Luke writes. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting the church? Wait, look, are you confused, Luke? You just told us that Paul was persecuting the church. And now Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? They see where Paul is getting his theology of the body as Christ's body. Jesus declares that to persecute and destroy the church is to persecute Him. There is an inseparable connection between Jesus and the church. There is such a solidarity between Jesus and the church that to wreak havoc in the church is to provoke the Lord of Lords. The lesson is very clear. You don't mess with the church. Because if you're messing with the church, you're messing with whom? Christ. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Is he persecuting Jesus? Yes, because he was persecuting the body of Christ. It's interesting that some of the most severe warnings in the New Testament is to church dividers. Those who want to create divisions in the church. Earlier in this letter, Paul says, 1 Corinthians 3, 16-17, do you not know that you are, and he's speaking to the local church here, you are God's temple, and that God's Spirit dwells in you. If anyone destroys God's temple, and that was division, that's the context here. If anyone destroys God's temple, his church, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are the temple. You, plural, as a church. Romans 16 Verse 17 through 18. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. Avoid them. Hey, Abby, did you hear about phone rings, text message, an email? Hey, have you heard about so-and-so? What do you think about it? And you see that there's something there instigating division. What does Paul say? Avoid them. Hey, I'm not going to talk to you about that. I'm sorry. If you want to talk, you go to that person and deal with that. And after you talk to that person, if you need help, you come to me. Well, have you talked to that person first? Titus 3, verses 10 through 11. Warn a divisive person once, and then warn them a second time. After that, what? Invite him over, have dinner with him, just pretend that nothing's happening. Have nothing to do with them. Oh, that's so unloving. That's so unloving. Jesus is saying, you don't mess with my body. You don't mess with my church. And here's local churches. It's the church in Rome. It's the church in Crete. Many Christians in America especially have never felt the weightiness of this here. People engage with you to, be to divide the church and you go on. And you keep feeding, entertaining those things. Have nothing to do with divisive people. Why? Because once you become an enemy of the church, you're actually becoming an enemy of Christ. So that's why Paul says, so it is with Christ. 
Because the church is so connected to Jesus that they are inseparable. And he gives the reason here, verse 13. For in one spirit, here's the reason for the unity over all the diversity. For, the grammarians here, those who like grammars, for, he's explaining, for, here's the reason for unity over diversity. For, in one spirit, we are all baptized into one body. That's line A. Then you have line B here. That's very important. His structure comes in the middle. It speaks of the extension of line A and line and the second A. For in one spirit we are all baptized into one body. Middle. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. And look at the similarity between the first and the last line, the third line. And all were made to drink of one spirit. All Christians. That's what Paul is saying without exception, are baptized with the Holy Spirit. I think it's the NIV for by one Spirit we were all baptized. I think it's the NIV that says by. And, and that's misleading. That preposition is always translated as baptized with or in the Spirit. And it's always the Lord Jesus who baptized us with the Spirit. You can go home and study the Gospels and the rest of the New Testament. All Christians, without exception, are baptized in the Spirit. Brothers and sisters, so many misunderstandings about this verse. So much division in the church. I was part of a church earlier on that if you didn't have the baptism of the Holy Spirit, you were a second class of Christian. And they would come here. That's the completely opposite that Paul is doing here. He's trying to create unity in the church by stating that they all were baptized in the Holy Spirit. Baptism in the Holy Spirit is not a second blessing for some special people. It's the first blessing for all Christians. That's what Paul is saying here. And then you go to the Old Covenant. I will give them an, my Spirit. I will give them a new heart. So to be baptized in the Spirit is to be part of the New Covenant. to be saved. For in one Spirit we are all baptized. Look at that. In two. In two. And that's a Greek preposition that speaks of purpose. And here the NIV actually captures better the meaning. Because the NIV says, For in one spirit we are all baptized so as to form one body. And that's right. It's a purpose here. The goal and purpose of being baptized with the Spirit is to form one body. So Paul is saying that we were saved to what? In order to form the body. The one body of Christ. Becoming a Christian, that's Paul's argument, is to become part of the body of Christ. And then you go through Acts, and you see that Luke says that when people are saved, they are added to the church, and they are added to the Lord. Same thing. Wait a second. Are they being added to the Lord, or are they, are they being added to the church? Yes. <laughs> yes. To be added to the Lord is to be added to His body, to the church. So the evidence that you are saved, the evidence that you are baptized with the Holy Spirit, is not greater knowledge, speaking in tongues, but a life in community in the body of Christ. That's Paul's argument. We are all saved to form one body. Despite all the different members, we are all saved by grace to form this one beautiful body. The price paid for our fellowship was paid with the blood of Jesus. That's why Paul says in Ephesians 5.25, Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. 
His death had a corporate agenda. When Jesus died for His people, yes, He was thinking about Betsy, yes, He was thinking about John, He was thinking about Nestor, but not so they can live by themselves, but to form one body. One body. How can people profess to love Jesus and despise the object of His love and death? That's a great question. How can people profess to love Jesus and yet despise the purpose of His death to form one body? The famous argument is, oh, Paul's talk about the universal church. Paul's talk about the universal church. I don't need to be part of a local church. Let me ask you one question. Who is Paul writing this letter to here? Local churches in Corinth. Okay? That's very important. There cannot be universal church without local churches. You may say, why? How come? Because you cannot fulfill all the New Testament commandments without a local church. It's impossible. It's impossible to live a life of the New Testament without a local church. It's impossible. You cannot have mutual accountability with Christians all over the world. A point that John makes very clear. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he, for he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, and he's talking about a local church here, how can he love God who he has not seen? So, don't hide behind this concept. I'm just part of the universal church and that's great. Okay? That's a very, very weak argument. And brothers and sisters, you can see when people come to this topic of local churches and the importance of being part of a local church, how they, and just pastorally speaking, you know, you know when people are being contaminated by false ideas about the local church. They read their Bibles every day. They listen to sermons every week. They read deep theological books. But suddenly, they start cultivating a condescending spirit towards the local church. They start to believe that there is no church good enough for them. The idea that true membership and commitment becomes repulsive to them. But they are reading deep theological books, listening to sermons, but no life in the body. They know all about the doctrines of grace, but never show grace to other Christians. So you see, the membership in the local church... It's a biblical terminology. Sometimes, many times people come, especially in our church, they, they, they ask, what is the biblical argument for formal church membership or church membership? First of all, it's biblical. And I would put on the other people's shoulder, you need to show me that there was no formal church membership in the early church. Why do I need to prove to you that God requires and wants certain formal membership in a local church? Let me ask you, if you are a believer, is your name written in the book of life? That's the universal church. You have your name written there, right? The local church, I believe, should try to resemble as much as you can what's in heaven. Remember Israel? You go through the Old Testament. All those names, all those names. Why? Record of who are members of the people of God. Who are these people? So-and-so, son of so-and-so, son of so-and-so. Acts chapter 2. You see that there was a numerical record of those who professed Christ. They could keep the track of the church growth. First Corinthians 14.23, Paul says, If the whole church comes together, how does he know the whole church? How do you know if it's the whole church? Or in Second Corinthians, when Paul says about the, the majority, about the punishment inflicted by the majority of the church, who is the majority? Whoever came that Sunday? Pagans who came that Sunday? Yes, let's kick him out of the church. Or formal members of that body. After the death of Ananias and Sapphira, we read in Acts 5.13, 
that no unbeliever dare to join the church. And that's hard because we often use this word to join something without understanding here the deep commitment that's related to this word. The Greek word kalau, kolau, used here in Acts 5.13, to join, is the same word used for sexual relationships, joining to the Lord. It's not a superficial joining, but a formal joining, a formal connection used for marriage. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 3 through 16, we know that the church in Ephesus had a list of what? The widows. Who are those widows? Any widow in Ephesus? The widows of the church. So it's clear that they had a list with the names of the church members. And among those church members, there was a list of those members who were widows. Christians are required to submit to their leaders. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord. Let me ask you, who is your leader? That's a very important question. Who is your leader? That's what I'm saying. You cannot live the, the New Testament Christian life without a local church. Who is your leader in the Lord? Because you must obey them. You must respect them. Who are your leaders? If you're not a member of this church, I'm not your leader. I'm sorry. I'm not your leader. I'm going to give an account. I'm going to give an account. The elders of this church, the leaders of this church, will give an account for members of this church. People who committed themselves to our care and said, Yes, I want to be under your care. Can you imagine I have to give an account for everyone who comes to this church without committing themselves? No, thank you. Let me ask you, can you be excommunicated from a local church today? Can you be excommunicated of a local church today? Matthew 18, 1 Corinthians 5. Then the question is, who, who, who is the church going to excommunicate? Anyone? No. The members of that church. The members of the church. So it's, it's even important with the church discipline aspect of excommunication, the imagery of a body. Because sometimes you need to have surgery and cut off a part of your body. Why? Because that's going to gangrene. That's going to spread. That's part of excommunication, church discipline. Sometimes you need to cut it off, but out of the body. But they must be members of the body. Verse 13. Go back there. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. Here is beautiful. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. Before he talked about men and women. In the church there must be no divisions because of different ethnicity, cultural, social, economical backgrounds. We become one body. Verse 14. For the, one, for the body does not consist of one member, but of many. There must be diversity in the body of Christ. And now Paul starts developing this, the importance of diversity, through verses 15 through 17, with the members that they have this sinful comparison and sense of inferiority. Okay, so, so verses 15 through 17 are the members who look at other members and go, I never preach, I never teach, I can't sing, I don't have uh, musical gifts, I'm worthless. That's the type of sinful comparison that Paul is going to deal with in the body of Christ. If the foot should say, because I'm, a, I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, Paul says that would not make any less a part of the body. That's what Paul is saying. To so compare yourself with others and then lament that you don't have the gift that others, other members have is extremely harmful to the body. Despite that, you cannot change. Because look how Paul says, 
that would not make it any less a part of the body. So those people who are always lamenting that they're not as gifted as some other people, or Paul is saying, just stop with the drama. Save the drama for your... and you can continue. That's what Paul says, stop, stop. You're not going to change anything. Actually, you're very precious. Paul goes on to say, can you imagine? Can you imagine if the body was a whole eyeball? Can you imagine one big, gigantic eyeball walking around, rolling around? That's, that's Paul. He's going to a grotesque, grotesque imagery here so people can be shocked. Can you imagine a gigantic eyeball just coming here? Or a gigantic nose, gigantic ear. It's ugly and it's useless. Right? Can you imagine a huge nose apart from the body? But now you put the nose in the body and that looks good. The eyes. Oh, your green eyes. Your blue eyes. But now get just the eyeball outside the body. Is there any beauty on that? That's what Paul is saying. That's Paul's arguments here. To see yourself as inferior to others is selfish and arrogant because you are saying that God was unwise in gifting you. And then Paul moves on. Okay, there was those who see themselves as inferior, but there are also those in the church who think that they are superior to others. So that's the other group in the church. Those who think they are better than others. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Especially as soon as something hit your eyes and starts itching. What comes to your eyes? Your hands. Right? That's what Paul is saying. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Because once you see danger and you're thinking through that danger, you need your feet to run away. That's, also, that's Paul's argument. It's a sinful arrogance to believe that you don't need the local church. Because when you say, I don't need the local church, you're saying, just like these people here, I have no need of you. I have no need of you. Paul goes on and says, no, no, no. Every member is indispensable. Indispensable. So when people say, I don't need the church, maybe they don't say, but they just live like that. They're actually saying, I don't need you. They believe they can live outside the body. And they cheapen the high price that Jesus paid on the cross. Spurgeon says, it does not matter how beautiful a member may be if it's not in the body. For it's not where it ought to be. And it's not where it will be of any service. There is an eye which has just been taken from a dead body. It lies on the operating table. What will you give for it? It's worth nothing. It must be put out of sight for it's of no use. There is a finely formed ankle. But it's useless apart from the rest of the body. How beautiful that leg is. Yes, as it is not joined to a body, you must bury it out of sight. So it doesn't matter how gifted you are, how beautiful your talent is. If it's not for the common good of the body, it's useless. It's ugly. Verse 24 and 25, But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. The NIV says, but that its parts, its members, should have equal concern for each other. Interesting word, to have equal concern, to have concern for each other. Greek word, merimanao, to have an anxious concern based on apprehension about possible danger or misfortune. To be worried about, to be anxious about. And here is a healthy way of being anxious, being worried. It's concern, it's a godly, it's a healthy concern for all the members in the church. 
That's exactly what Paul tells about Timothy. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that you too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like Timothy who will be genuinely, truthfully concerned for your welfare. Let me ask you. Let me ask you. Are you concerned? Are you concerned for each member? Do you have a concern for the members of your church? Do you have a concern for the members of your church? Do you care about them? Do you lose sleep because of the members of your church? That's what Paul is saying here. But that the members may have the same care for one another. Do you have the same care for all the members? Or you have just some care for those whom you like? Those who make you feel comfortable? Because if you just have concern for those whom you like, those who make you feel comfortable, actually have self-love. Because you love yourself so much, they want people who will fulfill all your needs. But God has so composed, look at the sovereignty of God, God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked, that they, there may be no divisions in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. A member didn't come to church today. What do you do? You text, you email, you call. How are you? I missed you today. That's the pastor's duty. That's the elder's duty. Is that what Paul is saying here? Let me ask you, is that what Paul is saying here? All the members, all the members caring for one another. And those, honestly, those people who are concerned for one another, those who are busy caring about others, they are the ones who you don't see complaining, grumbling, because they are busy loving other people, concerned with other people. Those people who are always grumbling, those people who are always complaining about the church, you just look at, are those people who never are involved with other people's lives. Caring, loving, concerning, losing sleep, giving what they have to others. When people start distancing themselves from the life in community, stop caring for the people, stop inviting others over for a meal, stop participating in the life of the church, you know that they are sick and they are ready to leave their body. Paul talks about the sovereignty of God in bringing each member to the church. Verse 18, verse 24, it's all about the sovereignty of God in bringing each member to the body. Paul's point is very clear. It's no accident that you are part of this church. Actually, God has gifted you and placed you for a very specific purpose. It's no accident. Membership in the local church is the beautiful work of Jesus in your life. God Himself plucked you out of the fire of hell and placed you in His body. It's all His work. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 3. I think this passage is important. I don't know if I, you know, I don't have here. So turn to Ephesians chapter 3, starting verse 8. Paul says, To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things, so that through the church, through the church, listen to this, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly place. According to Paul, the church is the theater where God displays His manifold wisdom. That's mind-boggling. People talk bad about the church. People have a low view of the church. Look at Paul says. It's the church. Not the family. Not the government. The church is the theater where God displays His what? His manifold wisdom. 
polypoikilos. The boundless variety or riches of God's wisdom is displayed not in your life apart from the church, but in your life within the local church. Isn't that crazy? That's mind-boggling. The church is the place where God displays the riches of His wisdom. Not creation. Even though creation displays His wisdom and glory. Not the family, not society. The church. That's where God displays His wisdom, His boundless wisdom by placing people together, bringing me from Brazil to here, bringing some of you from other states to here, bringing you from other countries from here. And Esther, I know you're smiling there. And He brings us together with different backgrounds, different uh, socio-economical backgrounds, IQ levels. John, John speaks to me and I have no idea sometimes what he's saying about radio waves and things. And I'm like, yes, John, yes. And I'm like, I have no idea what you're saying. And that's what God does. He displaces manifold wisdom by bringing us all together, making one body where we display His wisdom in saving people through Jesus Christ. And to finish, verse 26. That's the last one here. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. That's Paul's picture here. When, you, when you're walking at night and you kick your bed with your toe, your pinky, not just the toe hurts, your whole body, ah! And everything else comes to help you, right? Or if you break an ankle, the whole body is helping you. That's the image that Paul has here. That's amazing. I got sidetracked and I started studying the toe, especially the pinky toe, because a lot of times you think, what is the purpose of this? It's very important. It's very important. When someone in your church is praised or honored, the entire body rejoices. Some of you have received cars as gifts. You're not the only one, Esther. And we rejoice. We rejoice. When someone is praised, when someone graduates, when someone... We all rejoice together. But when one is hurt, we're all hurt together. When someone in your church is slandered, falsely accused, how do you respond? When someone says evil things about a church member and their social media, how do you reply? Oh, I'm not going to say anything. Be careful. Be careful. Many times people will slander another church member, will slander a church leader, and then he's going to come to you and say, hey, let's continue being friends. Oh, yes, of course. Let's have fun. I don't, I don't have an issue with you. I have an issue with the leaders. I have an issue with that member of your church. How do you respond to that? Are you hurt and offended together? Or it's, oh yeah, that's okay. It's just another man. It's just that person. Or it's the whole body. How can I have a relationship with you when you slander a member of my church? When you speak evil and lie about a leader in my church? If one member suffers, all suffer together. Brothers and sisters, that's why Sunday morning gathering is not enough. That's why if you see the church as this thing here right now, 
you will never experience the Christian life. It's much more than this. It's much more than this. And I would like to invite Zach and Claire. They have a testimony they would like to share about the importance of the members in the local church. So I'm in- Okay, so Guga asked us to share a little bit about uh, just how the church um, did just what he said about um, with grieving with us and asked us to talk about Sebastian and um, the church and how they came around and grieved with us. And um, so uh, we've been so overwhelmed by God's beautiful grace in our lives as we went through a very difficult time losing our son and blessed that he had given us gracious cross as our church body. Our brothers and sisters here jumped right into persistent prayer for us and a readiness to help and comfort us in any way they could. We received multiple texts, emails, and visits and were so encouraged by everyone's sensitive but rich encouragements, thoughtful song suggestions, that came right at the perfect moment for Clara, and wonderful passages that kept our hearts and minds focused on our glorious Savior. We were strengthened by the Lord through the body so much as we tried our best to be witnesses to those around us. We received healthy and theologically sound books, much-needed hugs, sweet cards, very special and abundant meals, as well as beautiful flowers. All the, memor- all the memorial service details were planned and paid for. Members gladly worshipped God with perfect hymns at the service, and the message taught was so deep and theologically sound, it could only encourage us into a deeper walk with Christ. <laughs> Sisters cleaned our home and were always available for Clara even just to listen. Our family here even cleaned up the cemetery. We even felt protected from challenging people and the evil lies. It has been such a joy to grieve alongside brothers and sisters. We hold to like theology and understanding and worship Christ through all our pain together. We're just so thankful for all of you guys and how you guys mourned with us as we mourned. So thank you. That's the body. That's the body. And that's what we're going to celebrate this morning. We're going to celebrate the Lord's table. And that's what we're celebrating. The grace of Jesus in saving us. Not only saving us, saving us for the purpose of placing us in a body. Would you bow your heads and start taking some time to pray? Praise the Lord. Thank the Lord. And I'll ask the men to start passing the elements.